Welcome to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast, ClearCast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security, and defense contracting updates in our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and government leaders. Hello, hello, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast. Today, I am delighted to welcome Jessica Reynolds, who currently serves as a technical recruiter in the cleared space, but she also supports the U.S. Navy as a command ombudsman, transition consultant, and a mentor for our friends over at Hiring Our Heroes. So with her experience as a military spouse and working with service members, we're going to dive into some tips to help guide those transitioning and veterans that might be navigating the job seeking journey today. So Jessica, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Absolutely, Katie. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you have been recruiting in the space for some time as a technical talent acquisition consultant. And I know you were also a military recruitment manager for various programs. So as I'm sure that many people have reached out to you in the past regarding potential openings you might have, I thought that we could start on what you might say is your biggest pet peeve when it comes to candidates reaching out? I wouldn't call it a pet peeve because I never want to discourage anyone from reaching out to me with questions. It's more of an education gap in understanding what recruiters do. A lot of people will reach out to recruiters and be like, hey, do you have openings doing XYZ or do you have ABC without really doing any homework first? This was a really big issue for me at a previous job, not the one I'm at now, where they, I would just get a message, do you have any openings in logistics? And it was a 50,000 person organization. We maintained several tens of thousands of job openings. I had no idea what was open in any give, at any given moment if it wasn't under my scope. So, you know, doing homework first, checking career sites before reaching out will save everyone a lot of headaches. Right. And it seems so simple, but I'm glad that you worded it that way in terms of it just being an education gap. I I know that as service members are going through TAP programs, there does seem to be a lot of information that's lacking in terms of the rules of engagement and networking with recruiters. And so doing that homework, doing that research, asking questions and potentially getting a mentor, I think would be really helpful. And so learning about a company and doing that research is really important. And I know that some candidates, especially those transitioning out of the military, might not know the difference between different types of recruiters in the civilian workforce. And again, that's just an education gap that they might not be told about through these TAP programs. And maybe even some recruiters who have only supported, say, small contractors or or have only recruited for just one company in this space, they might not even know the difference either. So I know that you've had experience with this. So could you break down the different types of recruiters and kind of the ins and outs of what they do? Absolutely. So I mean, I was lucky to start my recruiting career in a staffing agency setting, which really gives recruiters a wide breadth of exposure and knowledge. And so that brings us to the staffing recruiter. Staffing recruiters often work on contract style roles for various types of positions. I mean, anything... Tech Systems, Ronstad, Adeco, to some of your smaller boutique firms, they're going to help place you with people 
but they have to have the job oftentimes to be able to place you first. So that's going to be a contract type role, potentially a temporary role, though as a, a workforce, we do seem to be moving away in general from temporary roles in favor of more of direct placement when it comes to staffing. And those recruiters, their job is to find qualified candidates for their clients, regardless of what vertical and what area and type of specialty they have. They are going to be working on roles specifically for their book of business clients, which isn't too dissimilar from an internal recruiter like me, where I work only for the open roles that my company has. And that's probably the biggest difference is understanding that an internal recruiter is only going to have access to open roles that they are assigned from their company. Now, a smaller company like the one I'm at now only has one recruiter. So I have all of the open roles. But moving towards a larger company like larger defense contractors, Amazon, Google, they have hundreds of recruiters. And so it can take some finesse to land on the right recruiter, but your outreach message will predicate how helpful that person may be to you. And then you have the executive recruiter, which everyone confuses with the, the hidden job market. That is one of my most favorite topics. The hidden job market is traditionally something that is for C-suite, VP, senior VP, director style roles for larger companies, because those are roles that are never really going to be posted on job boards for general public consumption, because those are very strategically sourced roles in which only a few niche candidates are actually qualified for. And a lot of people like to assume that's the hidden job market and Resume writers will try to sell you $1,000 resumes to access the hidden job market when really you're never qualified for it anyway. And then there are sourcing specialists who help other recruiters like me with some of the more rudimentary sourcing functions to really just go out and find people. A sourcer's job is to go out and scrape every corner of the internet to find candidates. Most recruiters know how to source, but sourcing specialists take it to an entirely new level. Yeah, those are all great points. And I love your your note about the hidden job market, which is something that at clearance jobs, we don't necessarily talk about very much, but it's really important for service members to understand who that executive recruiter is and maybe manage their expectations if, if they're trying to reach out to them. You know, I've, I've never supported a staffing agency, so I, I really appreciate all of that insight. And, you know, I used to support sort of the full life cycle of recruiting. And so again, to your point earlier, it just really, it's really imperative that service members and veterans and those transitioning, they do this research so they understand who they're reaching out to and, you know, sort of save time on their end and the recruiter's end. And so I, I'd love to talk about some myths. And clearance jobs, we we recently released the 2023 Security Clearance Compensation Report. That serves as a really great resource to both recruiters and cleared candidates in this space, specifically for salary negotiations from the candidate's point of view. And so I know that I've heard from candidates, and I'm sure you you have from their perspective, that recruiters are always trying to lowball candidates, 
which I would say is a common misconception, depending on how many recruiters you've actually had candid conversations with. So let's bust some other notorious recruiting myths, like every recruiter is trying to lowball candidates. Would you have any others that we could walk through or that are commonplace in this in this job? I love the lowball one because, I mean, first and foremost, recruiters don't set your job offer. We are administrative at best when it comes to job offers. We provide the candidate to the hiring manager and everybody already signs off on it. The big thing is, is I don't understand why in recruiting, in hiring, and especially in defense, why salary bans are so secretive. I will bring up salary on the first call with every candidate, no matter what. I will tell you exactly what the salary is. You don't even have to tell me what you're looking for. I will tell you my band is A to B. Are you good with that? If you say yes, great. If you say no, then we might talk a little deeper on how far off we are. So we really, it really is something that we don't, we don't make any more money for lowballing people and staffing recruiters lose money on lowball offers because they're paid based on how much the candidate is paid. Another good one is that recruiters only read a, read your resume for about six seconds. That is, I mean, in six seconds, I don't even think I've realized what your name is yet by the time I've read your resume. And so we do do a cursory scan and we'll look to make sure you the resume is hitting all of the requirements, especially as we're working in defense. We are beholden to different hiring laws than the rest of the non-cleared job market, which is OFCCP, which is a whole other bag of worms to to open, but we have to hire based on the contents of the job description. So if the resume doesn't meet the cursory minimum listed requirements, there's no reason for us to read further because we cannot do anything without that. So I would say I do a good 30 to 60 second scan to make sure the, the big hits are there. And then I dive deeper. And if it looks like it's close on a deeper dive, I'll set up a call, set up a call, kind of expand on some information, get some more details, ask a few questions, and then move on from there. The ATS is eating your resume. The only ATS that I have ever really worked with or seen that scans for keywords on resumes is USA Jobs. It's the only one. A res, uh, an applicant tracking system, ATS, or big scary monster, depending on uh, what lens you're looking at it, is a filing cabinet. It's a digital filing cabinet to sort and store candidate information based on the jobs they applied to. And then it's a repository for us recruiters to be able to go back and search for those people who we told, you know, hey, we'll keep your resume on file. Well, that's what that means. It's it's in the applicant tracking system. It is something we can go back and search. And when people are getting almost immediate rejection emails after applying, it's likely because they've answered a knock-in or a knock-out question incorrectly. So the knock-in, knock-out questions that we have, especially coming from a cleared space, is do you possess a clearance and do you possess a clearance at this level? Those are requirements. Uh, We operate in a fairly reactive hiring state in pretty much most U.S. markets. Uh, We don't always have time to sponsor that clearance, which can take, I mean anywhere from four to six weeks to get the interim clearance or temporary as they're calling it now. And we just don't have that time. So 
you know, if you're checking that you don't have something or you do have something that's listed as a knock-in, knock-out question, there's a very good chance that that is causing the immediate kickback of an application. Or you're taking the bad advice from the LinkedIn gurus who are telling you to shoot your shot if you meet 40% of the requirements. Great, great point. Well, and I love your point about salary bans, like, especially in a market today where recruiters even don't have the flexibility to really try to lowball because they're dying for candidates. And they really don't set those requirements anyway. And, you know, the whole point of recruiter having that salary conversation on the first call, it's just to not waste anybody's time. And, and I, I, that point about the ATS and that the ATS isn't, you know, using AI to scan for keywords. Time and time again, every recruiter I talk to says, that's not a thing. I'm rejecting your resume or the knockout questions are, you know, you're rejecting yourself and shooting yourself in the foot. But I'm not sure of any small to mid-sized contractor that I've supported can invest in an ATS, nor does leadership really want to, that employs that type of AI. To counterparts at places like Google and Booz Allen, Raytheon, I mean, a lot of the, the larger corporations out there and none of them are using it. It's resumes are usually not great. There is a lot of room for margin of error, room for leaving out something that the, the applicant doesn't feel is pertinent, but it is. And computers are not perfect, just like people are not perfect. And so if we were to push people out based on keywords in their resume, we would lose out on such great talent. And especially in this market where we're all fighting for the same small talent pool, that particular, whoever employed that sort of hiring practice would not be able to withstand it long because they wouldn't be able to hire anyone. Well, there you have it on those myths busted people. And so you do have the experience to bust a lot of these myths. You're an active duty mill spouse, and you're also a mentor for hiring our heroes, which I mentioned in my intro. So how would you say being a part of this military family kind of ecosystem influences the way that you recruit today? Before I became really ingrained in the military spouse community, I was very black and white in my recruiting. It was very much, well, do you, you know, do you have XYZ? You know, if you don't have XYZ, then, then goodbye. And then when I really started talking to a lot more military spouses about the experiences they had, because I got lucky when I married my husband, we've been in Norfolk the entire time we've been married. And so I haven't had to move around and start over and, you know, restart my career in different locations. And in talking to a lot of men and women military spouses who have had to do that, it's really made me view how I, how I intake someone's experience and how I champion for em employment gaps and things that aren't necessarily linear in experience. Because when you look at a resume, you expect to see somebody, you know, start at a low entry, low to mid entry level role and consistently have steps that make sense going up the ladder and it's not always the case and it's not always due to someone being a poor performer or being flaky and doing too much unstrategic job hopping because there is such a thing as strategic job hopping which is great for your career and it makes sense but a, a military spouse's resume doesn't always make sense because we don't always have the choice 
So I try to make sure that, you know, when I see things like that and we get some managers that kind of push back and I'm like, hey, well, let's let's dive deeper. Let's look at this. Is this someone who was flaky? Let's let's find out if this is someone who was flaky or someone who just has some circumstances that were beyond their control. And I feel like the defense contracting space or even, you know, the federal agency route in their recruitment practices, they're they're a little more understanding knowing that someone's a military spouse and trying to keep them employed through, you know, remote work and things like that. And I feel like corporate America is definitely getting there as well. And I think that for any recruiters listening, a lot of military spouses are cleared because they maybe work on base where their spouse is serving active duty. And so investing in partners like the Military Spouse Employment Partnership, I think as a recruitment practice is really important because, again, a lot of those military spouses are cleared. And so lastly, Jessica, I really want to thank you for joining the podcast today and bringing a lot of this really great advice to our listeners, whether they are cleared candidates or if they're recruiters or any leader in sort of the national security space. But I wanted to ask any advice for those seeking careers in a military spouse or active duty capacity, any top tips you want to share as we close out? Mentorship is key. I participated with American corporate partners, um, but there's also, you know, hierarchy rows. And there's also just a, a plethora of people who are just so eager to help. And, you know, one of the best ways to find somebody is to look up a location or a job title and type in military spouse after it and hit people and just look. These are people who are going to have similar backgrounds, similar experiences. And one thing about the military spouse, the military veteran, and a lot of the cleared community as a whole is we kind of protect our own. So reaching out to somebody who you have some sort of background similarity to and just asking for 10 to 15 minutes of their day for just like a quick coffee chat. It can be a virtual coffee. It can be a real coffee. Learning from the learned experiences of others is something that is so invaluable in finding out how someone got where they were with a non-traditional background. Love it. Yes, get all the mentors. And I'm sure all of the cleared candidates listening today can find Jessica on clearancejobs.com. And there you have it, folks. Some great tips from one of our expert recruiters in the national security space. And so for more information on the military transition, guidance for military spouses, or anything regarding the cleared job search, you can visit me.clearancejobs.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Clearance Jobs Careers Events Team. If you're in the DMV area or looking to relocate there, then take your career off your list of things to worry about. Find your perfect career at the Clearance Jobs DC and Virginia All Levels Clearance in-person event, held on April 26th from 1 to 3 p.m. at the Watermark Hotel. For all you cleared professionals, you don't have to keep this top secret, so share it with a friend and bring them along with you. Learn more at clearancejobs.com.